You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you all. My name is Pastor Mark, if we haven't met, and um, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's always a pleasure to be here and study God's Word together, and I'm just excited. I'm excited to do that with you today, so let's pray and get started. God, I pray that you would be with us today. Lord, I thank you for bringing us here. I thank you for giving us the opportunity to worship you, God, in freedom. Lord, we thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you for um, the opportunity to remember um, Christ, King of the universe, coming to earth as a baby. God, it's, an, it's a miraculous, miraculous thing. And uh, we just, just blows my mind. God, I pray that you would help us today as we dive into Ephesians. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, be honest um, with ourselves where we are at. God, I pray that you would peel back the layers of our heart Lord, and that you would open our minds to what you would have um, for us this morning. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would um, be challenged. I pray that we would be fed um, by your word, God, in your name. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. You can grab your Bible um, because we are literally going to work through the passage one verse at a time. If you don't have a Bible, take the one in front of you. Um, if, it's, if you don't have one in general, just take it. It's yours. We'd love to give it as a gift um, to you. you know, we are going to um, do part two of last week, uh, walking in the new self, because this, this passage is an extension of what Pastor Ben was talking about last week. So I'm going to give you an overview of where we're going, and then we'll dive right into it. So um, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at what the new self looks like, right? Last week, ostensibly, the argument was that you need to throw off the new self and put on, uh, throw off the old self, put on the new self. And this week, we're going to look at what that new self looks like. And it's not an exhaustive list, um, but it's a great example of um, what we should um, be doing and what God is calling us to. And then I want to show you a few things here to watch for in this passage as we go through each verse. So the first one is this. I want you to watch for the fact that God is calling us to be like himself. This is a theme that we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians, right? God hasn't called you to be something that he's not, okay? I mean, you've got to keep that in the back of your head, that God is going to constantly be calling us as Christians to be more like him. And the other thing that I want you to look for is the juxtaposition of the old self and the new self. We're going to see this contrast in each of these verses between the old self in the new self, and it's going to be put there very intentionally um, because God wants to show us some things through that contrast. And the other thing that I want you to look for is that there's a pattern um, of calling out the negative, right? The negative, the old self, describing the positive, right? The new self, and providing the motivation. And so you're going to see that pattern in each of these verses that we go through. So let's dive in and look at Ephesians 4, verse 25. It says, Therefore, Putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. So what's the negative? What's the old self? The old self is lying, right? That's what we're supposed to put off. We're supposed to put off 
lying. And then what's the positive? What's the new self that we are supposed to put on? We are supposed to speak the truth. And what's the motivation? What's the motivation for that? Because we are members of one another, right? And that is something that we are going to come back to because it's important. So why, why do we put away lying? I want to give you um, just sort of five, five things. And the first one I found is, um, in my study of this text, Matthew Henry was describing how the people Paul was writing to, uh, they, were, they believed that affirming a profitable lie is better than a hurtful truth, right? And um, I don't think our society is that far off of that either, right? And yet he says, that, no, that's wrong, right? That we should put off lying and that we should speak the truth. Um, the second thing that I think we want to consider when we consider putting away Lying is, who's the greatest liar in the world, right? I'm hoping you said Satan and not your spouse or um, somebody, uh, one of your friends or kids or something like that. The greatest lie in the world is Satan, right? And so let's consider, what are a few of Satan's greatest lies? I think one of the greatest lies that Satan gives um, is one that he's been giving from the dawn of time, and it says, did God really say, right? Did God really say that has permeated our culture, and it has also permeated the church, has it not? Right? We have that happening so often now as we go to the Scriptures to examine what God said, and this, this lie is coming in and said, did God really say regarding LGBTQ+. Did God really say that men and women have different roles? Did God really say that His Word is authoritative and inerrant? Right? We have all these different things, and the list could go on and on and on. And did God really say? It's a lie that Satan has been spreading. We also know, actually, from Revelation 12, right, that's one of the places we find that Satan is an accuser. Right? And we find that his accusations are actually lies. Right? As most things with Satan, there can sometimes be some truth in them, but they are, at their core, a lie, right? And one of the things that I see Satan doing to a lot of Christians is telling them the things that they can't do, right? I can't pray out loud. I can't pray for a long time. I can't read my Bible long. I can't read my Bible well enough. I can't shake my addictions. I can't be a biblical parent. I can't be a biblical grandparent. I can't be a biblical spouse. I can't do blank. I'm too old. I can't do blank. I am too young. I can't, I can't, I can't. We hear it all the time. Do we not? Do we not? So I want to ask you right now, what are you saying I can't to God right now? Where God's saying, no, this is what I've called you to, right? And you're right. This is the lie, right? That Satan tells on your own, you can't, right? But you have the power of the living God living inside of you, right? That's the good news of being a Christian, right? That started at Christmas. Here's the third one that I want to give you. Um, This is one that we've been learning in our small group our small group's been going through judges. It's been excellent. And um, one of the things, uh, I'm going to give it to you backwards. We've been learning the truth, but this is the lie. Hear me out on this. Ability is more important than availability. Ability is more important than availability. That is the lie. Okay? And this is crippling the church because Satan spread this lie that you have to have a certain level of ability in order for God to use you. Right? And we hear it, right? Because you know it. We've been talking about this. We have needs in the church. We have things that we need people to step up and be able to do. And the main thing that I hear back is I don't have the ability. Right? But God is not calling you to have ability. 
He's calling you to be available, right? And then he will give the ability. And we've looked at that in our passage, and it's been fantastic, right? We looked at Ehud, right? Ehud, he was most likely crippled, right? You know the guy that stabbed the really fat king, right? That's Ehud, right? He was most likely crippled. That's the most likely explanation for what's going on. And yet God used him in a miraculous way, not because he was able, but because he was available, right? And we also, we looked at Gideon, right? Gideon's a mess, is he not? Right? Gideon gets, God calls Gideon, Gideon does not have ability. And on top of not having ability, he has fear and anxiety and trepidation. And it comes out over and over again and God will quell it. And then it comes up again and God will quell it and it comes up again, right? Because what does God call Gideon to do? But in, in all of that sort of pain, God, God uses Gideon because he gets there. He's available and God uses Gideon. Something else that I think we need to consider that is a lie in the church, and that is also crippling the church, is that sacrifice is more important than obedience. That's a lie. Sacrifice is more important than obedience, right? We know the flip side of that is true in Scripture. What does God call us to? He says, to obey is better than sacrifice, Right? And we get caught in this, do we not? Right? For some, our, all of us, our sacrifices are different. For some of us, it's the sacrifice of money. Hey, God, I give a lot of money. Right? God, look at the money that I've given, so I don't think I just need to obey in this one little area that I know you're calling me to. Where I give a lot of time, I, I, I give a lot of my time. Right? I don't think I need to obey in this area. Or I give, I give of my gifting, the things that I'm good at. Right? But I don't want to obey in this one area. Right? What does God call us to? We know the story, right? Saul gathers all this stuff and he's like, God, look at all this stuff that I can sacrifice to you. This is amazing. God says to Samuel, No, it's not amazing because you didn't obey. To obey is better than to sacrifice, it's better than to give all these gifts. I want your obedience over everything. Another um, place that Satan tells us lies is in suffering. And I know that some of you right now are suffering, and it's hard. And um, you probably, probably already know the lies I'm going to say because maybe you've already heard them, right? But the first lie that Satan wants to tell you is that God doesn't care about your suffering. Is it not easy when we're suffering to feel like God doesn't care? But that's a lie. It's a lie. God does care. God absolutely cares. And here's the second thing. The second thing is that you need comfort more than anything. Right, that's the second lie. When you are suffering, you get that lie in your head that I, I wish I had comfort more than anything. It is not wrong to pray for comfort. It is not wrong to pray for healing. You should. You should pray for those. But you need Christ more than anything. You don't need comfort more than anything. So those are five lies. I'm sure you can think of more. You can think of them at lunchtime. Um, because we want to watch out for them. We want to watch out for the things that God... Um, the, the thing that Satan wants to lie to us about that keeps us from doing what God is calling us to do. And the third thing we can look at, if you look at verse 21, if you go back, and this was from last week, um, but you're going to see the contrast in this passage, is verse 21, it talks about that the truth is in Jesus. Right? Did you notice that? Do you see the contrast of the truth being in Jesus compared to the lying that we're supposed to be putting off? Right? This is what I'm talking about, that God is calling us to be like himself. Right? We've got to see that juxtaposition right? between children of the world and children of God, 
right? We take on the attributes of those we're following, right? That's why Paul tells them in verse 17, if you're looking back even a little bit farther, right, that once you are saved, your life can't look the same. It can't look the same as the Gentiles, right? It should look increasingly different. There should be a change that's happening in your life because you're now in Christ, so you should look different. And here's the last one. It's that lying and mistrust destroys the church. Lying and mistrust destroys the church. And we need to remember this when we go through this passage, because what's God's plan for the church? Remember, we looked at it in Ephesians 3. If you want to flip back one more chapter, check out Ephesians 3.10, because you have to see the progression of this in the text. Ephesians 3.10, what does it say? It says that, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, right? Remember, what's the cadence of Ephesians? We learned about who God is, we learned about the gloriousness of the gospel, and then we learned about this mystery, right? And the mystery is that the Gentiles would be joined with the Jews in this beautiful thing called the church, and that through the church, God would use the church to display the manifold wisdom of God to the world. And now, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, he's going to show us what that looks like. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at unity. And he said, look, through the unity of the church, this is how the manifold wisdom of God is going to be displayed. And now, as we move into this next section of old self and new self, he's going to show us that it's not just through the unity that the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed throughout all um, people, but that through the church putting off the old self and putting on the new self that the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed to the world. That we need to look different. What did, what did he, why did God give all those commands to the Israelites originally? What was their purpose? They were to be set apart. They were to look different from the nations around them. What does God tell us here to do? That we as the church should look different from those around us. Right? Do we so often not spend our whole lives trying to fit in and not be different? When God calls us to do exactly the opposite, we're called to be different. We're called to look like him. Let's look at 26 and 27. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. I love how God works. Alyssa's um, leading with the worship team was perfect. Right? So what's the negative? What's the old self in this? You can look at it, right? It says, don't be angry and sin, right? And so the positive, the, the new self is actually implied, right? It's just the opposite of that, right? Um, and then the motivation is what? To not give the devil an opportunity, right? And so just make sure you catch this with me. We're thinking about ourselves, yes, but we're also thinking about the church, right? Because he's writing about that. Right? He's writing to us as the church, and we don't want to give the devil an opportunity. Right? And the characteristics of an old self, right? one of the things of an old self is a bad temper and unjustified anger. Right? We can't control our anger. Jesus demonstrated righteous anger. We just, I need to show you this in Mark 3, 1 through 5. Mark 3, 1 through 5. Jesus entered the synagogue again. And there was a man who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, 
to save life or to kill, but they were silent. Don't, don't miss this. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him as to how they might kill him, right? Righteous anger is anger against sin, right? It's against the things that God hates, right? It's our unjustified anger that comes up um, when it's not that, right? And so where does righteous, unrighteous anger come from? And I want to give you three things. And Dustin, gave me, when Dustin was praying for me this morning and he prayed, God, help us to um, consume this not like TV, but like we're digging for gold. And I thought that was really good. Um, because that's my goal for this, right? I can't give you every example in every situation. We'd be here, our, all of our lunges would be burned to high heaven, right? Like, it, it would be bad, right? We'd be here for hours. Um, but what you can do is take, I, I hope just to jog your mind, and that you would be engaged in thinking about how it applies specifically to you. So I'm, I'm just going to give you three. Um, one of the reasons, uh, one of the places that unrighteous anger comes from is our pride, Right? When our pride is hurt, we get angry, right? And so if you struggle with sinful anger, what I want to encourage you to do is follow those outbursts of anger that you know and follow them backwards, and a lot of the time you're going to find that your pride was hurt, right? And there's the root that needs to be killed. You can work on controlling your anger, but a lot of the time it's going to be that pride that needs to be killed. The second thing that you can sort of trace those outbursts back, if you would like, um, is to self-will, right? Wanting what we want, right? If you've been around children long enough, um, you know this to be true, right? Do we not? We see the self-will of children, and they, why do they get angry a lot of time? Because they want what they want, right? They, they don't want to do something else. Um, but if you've been ar- around adults long enough, you begin to realize that age doesn't magically cure um, self-will, does it? And sometimes we can just be a little bit better at hiding it, or sometimes we think we're better at hiding it, and we're really not, right? But we still, a lot of us can struggle with self-will and wanting to do what we want to do instead of what God wants to do. And the last one that I'll give you is just inadequacy, failure. I've noticed this in my own life as it relates to parenting. And again, we're not all at the same stage, so I encourage you to think of an example that relates to you. Um, But for me, I can sense that unrighteous anger, that boils up in me sometimes when my kids don't listen or obey, right? Especially if it's around others, right? Because you feel like you failed or you can feel inadequate because you know you've tried so hard to help them to grow and yet you can see in this moment in front of others that they're not doing it, right? And so sometimes that can boil up in you um, because of inadequacy or feeling like you failed, right? And so we see Paul ends off this um, verse here, by, uh, just with a helpful tip, right, of how to ward off anger, right? Because it gets worse um, the longer you let it fester, right? Does that not true of anger, right? And remember, this is not just in your own life, but it's also in the life of the church, right? Don't give the devil an opportunity to rip the church apart. There have been many, many churches. It is heartbreaking to watch the amount of churches that have been closing, for a variety of different reasons, but sometimes it's this. Sometimes it's divisiveness, and a lot of the times it starts, um, or maybe it doesn't start with anger, but it ends with anger, and it's a sad, sad thing, and it breaks God's heart, and that should break our hearts too. Let's be on guard for that. Let's look at Ephesians 4.28 now. Let's keep going. Let the thief no longer steal, 
Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. So, what's the negative? What's the old self, right? Do not steal. What's the positive? What's the new self? To work hard yourself. And what's the motivation? To be able to be generous, right? It's to be able to be generous. Uh, When I was studying, I came across this quote from Francis Fultz. He says, giving becomes the motive for getting. I thought that was really good. I hope you did too, so I'll say it again. Um, giving becomes the motive for getting, right? And for many of you, you can resonate with this. This is one of the reasons that I love Christmas the most, right? Is because I love to give. And um, this is just something that God has instilled in me, but God was challenging me this weekend, right? Because Christianity, we're not just called to be generous a couple of days a year, right? We're called to be generous all the time, Right? And um, I just want to take a second and commend you, because we have many, many generous people in this church. And you are a tremendous blessing. I have no idea who you are. You guys know that Pastor Ben and I very intentionally never look at the giving, right? So I have no idea who you are, but thank you. Thank you to you who are really generous. It is a blessing. Um, you have blessed me. You have blessed this church. And so thank you um, to those who are, who are generous, not just in amount, um, but in percentage, in what you, and when you give, it, it's a blessing. So thank you. Thank you to all of you. And we can see this concept of generosity, right, um, littered throughout Scripture, right? Jesus talked about giving to the poor from the beginning in the church in Acts, right? This was a massive thing, right? It's one of the ways that they showed people the love of Christ was by being generous to everyone. And again, Why? Why? Do we consider why? Because giving to those in need is in the nature of God, right? You see how this always comes back, right? God gives us breath. Take a breath for a second. You feel that that's God's gift to you, right? And we get, we get so used to breathing, which is good, because if we always ever thought about breathing, we'd get nothing done. Um, but that breath is a gift from God. But way more important than just a breath from God. God gives us spiritual breath, right? He gives us spiritual life, right? And this is in direct contrast to the devil, is it not? How is he described in the Bible, right? How is the devil described? The devil is described as someone who's looking to steal, right? And kill and destroy, right? And so men, look at me for a second. Satan wants... To either kill your wife spiritually or kill her joy. That is his goal. And I hope that raises the hairs on the back of your neck. It makes you want to punch him right in the face because he's coming for your wife. And men and women, Satan is coming for your children. Is he not? Satan wants your children. You think of the parable of the sower. He would, either, he would rather either come and take the seed off the path before it has a chance to grab root. If it starts to grab root, he'd like to choke it out. And if he can't choke it out, he'd like to take their eyes off Christ and make them miserable for the rest of their life and take their joy and take the glory away from God. That is what Satan wants to do to your kids. And I've worked with youth and kids for a long time and I've seen the mama bear come out of sweet, sweet women for a whole lot less than Satan coming for their kids. So I encourage you, mama bear, come out for that and protect 
and fight for your kids. Get on your knees and pray for your kids. Disciple your kids. Because Satan's coming. He wants them. He wants them badly. And I feel like so often, like Alyssa said, we are not aware enough of what's going on. And we are apathetic as he comes for our children. And singles, it's the same for you. It's the same for you, right? Satan doesn't just want this for you. He also wants it for those that you love and you care about. He wants to take your joy, or he wants to take their life of your siblings, or your parents, or your grandparents, or your kids, and your friends. That's what he wants. And I hope it makes you want to stand up and fight. And if you've been apathetic, I pray that today that God will use this and say, hey, look, I need to start putting on the armor of God every day. I need to get down on my knees and pray. I need to start taking, discipling my own children seriously and not leave it to somebody else. Because Satan Satan wants to steal. He's a thief. And we are called to be the opposite. The nature of God is to give and be generous. The nature of the devil is to steal and keep for himself. Who are we following? Can the world tell who you're following because of that? Ephesians 4.29, it says this, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Right? So what's the negative? The negative is no foul language. Right? The positive. What's that? What's the new self? Good language used to build others up. And what's the motivation? So that it gives grace to those who hear. The Greek word for foul language um, essentially means rotten. Okay? And from that word rotten is derived the sense of worthlessness or uselessness. And why? Because rotten things are worthless and useless. Right? So that's what we do. You ever get one of those berries? You come home from the grocery store, it's the worst. Right? You get the little things of berries, and you come home, and one of them's got mold growing on it. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is so awesome. I got mold in my berries. No. What do you do? You, you, immediately, you chuck the one with mold, right? Because what happens if you just leave it? You're like, oh, that, I guess that's just part of the package today. And then you leave it. What happens? The mold spreads, right? So you pick the, the one that's moldy and anything else around it, and you throw it away because you don't want the mold spread. Rottenness spreads, right? We've experienced this, right? What do bad attitudes do? They spread. What does sin do? It spreads. Have you ever been around people that swear a lot? What happens? What do you start finding in your own mind all the time, right? You have to fight it. Maybe sometimes you're better than others, right? It spreads. And if you're not careful, those rotten words start coming out of your mouth too, right? We were being called to set apart. But I think that possibly, at least in my, in my, I don't know, study this week, I think what's possibly more startling is that, is the application of this verse that um, is regards to uselessness, right? Not just viewing our talk by rottenness, but by uselessness, right? Have you ever found yourself driving home from a friend, says a Christian friend, and you just feel like, oh man, like, that was a good, I'm, I'm glad we got together, but I just feel like we left a lot of meat on the bone, right? I'm sorry for all the vegans with the meat references, uh, but we just left a lot of meat on the bone. There, there's more, um, there was a lot more that we could have accomplished that night, right? We didn't really talk about Christ. Right? It wasn't that bad. 
But we, there was so much more opportunity to, to encourage each other and to challenge each other and to pray for each other. And sometimes you just feel like you just missed the boat on that. And you just ended up in sort of good time, but ultimately it was kind of useless, right? Or maybe in a non-Christian um, sort of perspective, I walked out of the hairdressers this week sort of feeling this way. Um, just felt like there was more opportunity that I could have taken, right? You're, they're stuck with you in that chair for like 15 minutes, I think that's a golden opportunity. And so I felt like I took some opportunity, but I just felt like I, felt like I left meat on the bone, that there was more opportunity there. And instead I wasted some of it with just useless talk. And um, so I, I don't know. That's just something that was convicting me this week, and I just put that out there to you as well, that maybe you felt the same way, that it's not just our foul language, but it can sometimes be the uselessness of our language Right? Because what are we supposed to do instead? Right? We are supposed to build up those in need. And who is in need? Right? It's everyone. Everyone is in need. What does it say? So that it gives grace to those who hear. Luke 4.22 says this, All who spoke well of him marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Did you catch that? They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Right? We're being called to be like Jesus right? over and over and over again. Right? The, the definition of the grace of speech is that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, and loveliness. And the purest form of all these things are found in Christ. Are they not? Verse 30. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by him for the day of redemption Right? And so again, the negative, right? we're not supposed to agree with the Holy Spirit. The positive is implied in that. Right? And then um, the motivation is because he's the spirit of the living God, which acts as your seal for the day when you will meet God face to face. Right? And so to sum up, this is something like, oh, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is God living inside of you. What grieves God? What grieves God is sin. What grieves God is the old self. So don't grieve God. And if you're looking for a place to start in that, you start right here, right? The list that he's given us, the list that we're going to read in the next verse here, right? These are the places to start. We grieve God when we sin, when we say that we're a Christian and we leave on the old self and we don't put on the new self. Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Do you notice what all of these things have in common? They're all driven by a view that's centered around us. You notice that? Bitterness. They have blank that I do not have, therefore I get bitter. Anger and wrath. How does that happen most of the time? You did blank to me, right? That's what causes our anger is that they did. You can insert what you want to me. And shouting and slander, they're two different ways to get even, are they not? One is to your face, and one is behind your back, right? So I don't know if you're an in-the-face person or behind-the-back person, right? But neither are good, right? And what does it say? I'm going to do that in either way, and I'm going to do it because of what you did to me, right? I go do this to you. I get in your face, or I talk about you behind your back because of what you did to me, Right? And what's malice? The intention or desire to do evil. 
right? Who does that sound like it comes from? Right? It's the devil, the sinful nature, our old self, in direct contrast to Christ, the life that he's calling us to live. Look here, basically what he's showing them in this passage are, you are a Christian, you said you are a Christian, but by your life, these are the areas where you're still following the devil. That's kind of what he's saying here. He's trying to show them through all these contrasts that, look, this is Christ, this is what your life looks like, so you're fo- it looks like you're following the devil, and people see the devil in you more than Christ. So follow Christ. That's what he's saying. Right? So I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm saying that there can be areas in all of our lives where our, our lives look more like the father of this world than the father of heaven. And we should take that a lot more seriously than we do. Because it means a lot. Both for the health of our own soul and also for the glory of God. Right? So we got to take sin more seriously. We need to take putting off the old self, putting on the new self, a lot more seriously than sometimes we do. And so he ends with an example here in Ephesians 4.32. This is an example of the new self, right? And you're going to see how this all sort of sums it up, right? How are we to act? We are to act kind and compassionate, right? And what will this require? It requires forgiveness, right? This is something that I just found interesting when I was studying this week because I don't always equate um, needing forgiveness to act kind and compassionate. Um, but something that, um, again, you can remember is so often when I read the Bible, I, I can read it looking just at me. But this was first and foremost for the church. And how does God know that we are going to need to, if we're going to act kind and compassionate to one another, what do we have to be able to do? We have to be able to offer forgiveness to each other because God knows that we're dumb and God knows we're going to screw up and God knows we're going to hurt each other. And half the time, we can mean it or not mean it, but it's still going to happen. And so we have to be able to forgive each other if we are going to be kind and compassionate to one another. And why do we do that? Because just as God forgave you in Christ. Right? called to be like Christ. I'm going to close with these three thoughts, just some thoughts to close. The first, right, is what we've been talking about, that we are not meant to do this alone, right? We're thinking about Christmas, right? What's the best news about Christmas? Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us, right? That the king of the heaven and the universe would come down into our mess to be with us and to save us because he knows we desperately needed it. And we need him still, Right? That's what we need. That's the good news of Christmas. We are not meant to do this alone. Stop trying to do it on your own. You need God. But you also need each other, right? You also need each other. Maddie was watching a bougie woman's um, Christmas event that Louis Giglio's uh, church had put on, and uh, Jenny Allen was speaking about community. And one of the things she said really stood out to me. She just said that the Bible doesn't call us to community, the Bible assumes community. I thought that was really good. And you can see that in the verse that we just looked at. Look at verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. The Bible just assumes that you are together and that you should be kind and compassionate to one another. The Bible assumes that you are going to need to forgive each other because you are together and God knows the nature of humanity. 
That stuff is all assumed. So we're not just called to it as like this thing that we hopefully should strive for. It's just assumed that we're already doing it. And for a lot of us, we're not even there yet. We're trying to go things alone. Right? So you need people. You need God around you and you need people. Right? And you need encouragement because this is hard. Right? Can we be honest about that? Like, it's easy to be fair, right? And to, to listen to it. It's easy for me to say, hey, you should do this, this, and this. Right? Is it easy? To say it, yeah. Is it really hard to do? Yeah. Right? We can be honest about that. I'm not standing up here like, wow, guys, get it together. This is easy. This is hard for me. Right? It's hard for all of us. But the weight, the importance is absolutely necessary. Right? And that's why there's the passion and the zeal to go do it. Right? So we need, we need encouragement. We need other people around us. You need people to pick you up because you're going to fail. You're going to fall. You need prayer. Because this isn't going to work if it's not in God's power, right? And you need protection from the herd because Satan will pick you off if you're on the outside, right? You've all watched those YouTube videos, right, where the wildebeest is on the edge of the pack, right? What happens to the wildebeest on the edge of the pack in every YouTube video? It gets torn apart because he's not in the herd or she's not in the herd, right? We need to live together or we'll get torn apart. Here's the second one. You can find happiness in sin, but you can't find joy. Right? You will find happiness in some of those old life things, but you will not find joy. Right? Have you ever had fun sinning? We all have. Right? Right? And so listen to me. The, the message of the church is not that sinning is no fun. It's that God is greater. It's that God is better. Right? It's fleeting versus lasting. It's temporary versus eternal. It's fun in the moment predicated on circumstances versus content and full of peace despite your circumstances. It's the difference, right? And we've all felt this, have we not? We've all felt the difference as Christians, right? One is the old self. One is the new self. Here's the last one. So how do we change, right? This is all predicated on change. How do, how do we change? Right? Got a cartoon for you. Is it big enough that you can read it? It says, who wants to change? Or who wants change? Oh, I screwed it up. Who wants to change? Everyone's hands down. Right? It's funny. Because isn't that so often how it goes? We'd all love to see other people change. We'd like to see the general change in the church. Right? Oh, God, I pray that this church would go this way. Right? It starts here. Right? It starts with each one of us. If we all collectively take little steps of obedience, that's how the change actually comes to fruition. And so how do we change? Right? We all know the answer. You're all good Christians. You know the answer. How do we change? Right? It's through God. God's the one that makes lasting change. You guys know that. Right? But the fact that we have a part to play in him changing us, that's mind-boggling. Right? Because here's the thing about the church answer. We all know it. Right? How many of you have walked out of a sermon and thought, oh, that's so good, or you were so convicted or so motivated and then that change lasted a week, two weeks, month, six months. It never resulted in actual change, right? I know I have, and that can be for a variety of reasons, right? Perhaps it's on the pastor, right? Maybe he gave a very motivational message that never actually taught you the word of God in any sort of depth, right? And that can cause this problem, right? Because then all you have is the pastor's motivation and gumption to go off of. And you don't have God's word to anchor you, right? That's a problem. 
right? Because the majority of change is by the power of God through the truth of God, which is found in the Word of God. So we need the Word of God desperately. It's a very plausible answer. Um, but it's also plausible that you had a part to play, right? And that I had a part to play, right? Because you left it as some great thought or something that was really good to discuss around lunch, but then you forgot about it, right? Or you didn't pray about it and actually ask God to let it take root in your life. Or you didn't actually put it into practice. This is a big one, is it not? Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. No, we're going to do it. It's a great idea, right? Or maybe you tried to put it into practice in your own strength, right? Then you failed. But this was a big one for a lot of us, right? You started to change, and then you were showing the cost of changing, and it stopped, right? Because you weren't willing to absorb the cost of the change, right? Christians, our faith is built on change, so for the people who don't like change, like my kids, I'm really sorry, right? But God is calling us to change, right? Before you were saved, you desperately needed a change, right? Your destination was hell, set apart from God, right? Not in heaven with God. That was the destination. Then the unchanging God of the universe, he stepped in. He sent his only son to take your punishment, to die in your place, to come back to life so you, that your eternal destiny would be changed if you repent and believe. But that's only where it starts, It's only where it starts when it comes to change. You're not done with change, right? So how are we changed? We're by throwing off the old self and putting on the new self, right? Why? Because you have to simultaneously recognize the destructive nature of the old self to your own life and also the destructive nature of your old self to your ability to give glory to God. Both, simultaneously. And so should we want to change. Winston Churchill once said, to improve is to change, so to be perfect is to have changed often. Right? As Christians, God's goal is to change us more into his image. So we should want change. We should love change. We should embrace change. We should want conviction. right? Because conviction means God's showing us the thing that we need to change in. And we should want to be made more like him. Don't run away from conviction. Run towards it. It breaks people's heart, or my heart, when I see other people and people get this view of other people and they get to this place where other people say about them, Right? And it's a really sad thing. It's like, oh, they're too old. They won't change. Oh, they're too young. They won't get it. They won't change. They're too stubborn. They won't change. We should never be at a point, Christians, where we won't change to be more like Christ. To be in this place where we aren't willing to be changed by God is a very bad place to be. And so how do we change? Here's the end. The answer is simple, but yet very hard. We need to love God more than whatever the change costs. You need to love God more than whatever the change costs. Right? As Christians, I bet you, without studying more of the Bible, you probably know a whole bunch of things that God's calling you to right now. But I'd take a bet that some of the cost is holding you back, or your love for God is holding you back. And so for some of you, that change is going to cost time, and it's going to cost a rearranging of your life. Right? For some of you, it's going to cost social capital, right? As you step out in a way that you never have before in a place that's scary and hard. For others, that means that your pride's going to take a hit, right? And there's going to be a change in that area because you need to humble yourself and maybe go to someone in forgiveness and reconciliation. And for others, it might be the cost is facing a fear that you don't think you can overcome or you don't think you can do. One of the main things that I've noticed about the lives of youth and also of adults um, is that, um, th- and basically what it, they do is they, sorry, let me rephrase that. 
um, that keeps them from doing what they know is right, right? So both youth and adults, there's this thing that keeps them from doing what they know is right, and it's this. It's the fear of being alone. There's a tremendous amount of people that would rather keep on sinning in a social circle or keep on sinning in a family relationship or keep on sinning in another relationship, a romantic relationship, they know is killing and hindering their walk with Christ. But they'd rather do that than risk being alone. And I know that it's hard, and I get it. But if that's you, you've got to remember you are not alone. You have God who came to earth for you, and you have people around you. So do you love God more than the cost in front of you? Do you really believe he died for you? Right? Because if you do, then I believe deep down you know that God's got you and it's worth the cost. So put off the old self. Put on the new self. Right? At the cross, you were saved from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, which is basically what we're talking about, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, you are saved from the power of sin. Right? Both for your sake and God's glory. And in heaven, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Right? And what a glorious, glorious day that will be. Let me pray and invite Dustin up for communion. God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the chance to be here together to worship God. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to change. God, help me to change. Lord, sometimes change can be overwhelming. Lord, I pray that you would show each of us one thing, one area that you want to make us more like you. God, I pray that you would show us the old self, that you would show us the new self. God, and that you would give us the motivation, Lord. Lord, thank you for coming, Lord, for dying coming back to life so that we could be with you. God, I pray that we wouldn't live in the chains of sin, God, but we would live in freedom, Lord, and power provided by you. God, you are so good to us. Thank you. God, we pray for your help, and we thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Thank you for your patience with us. We were reminded in small group the other week of that. God's just so patient with us, and that's so good um, because sometimes we can, we can struggle with change. God, and yet you are so patient with us, and I just thank you for that. So, yeah, God, I pray this wouldn't be overwhelming, but I pray that it would be honest and real and we would take something away, and God, that we would actually let, let you do it in us, in your power, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.